for a few minutes, I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine yourself in Bible times and you are awaiting the victorious... Excuse me, sorry for doing this. You are awaiting the return of your victorious king. He is coming back from a, a great battle against a tremendous foe. And you are excited for his return. You love your king. He's actually a king of the people. He loves, cares, and protects his subjects. And when he has returned triumphantly in the past, whatever spoils, whatever treasures that he comes back with, the people, you know that he will put it to good use on their behalf. In fact, he has done much for the kingdom. He has built infrastructure for the kingdom, things like roads and buildings and canals. And when droughts or famines have occurred... He has responded by giving out grain and digging more wells, whatever has been needed to provide for the needs of his subjects. And because of all of this, the people not only love him, but they respect him and they, they honor him. They work hard for him, especially while he is away in battle with their best interests at heart. And then finally, that day comes his victorious return and the king enters the city, and of course it's just crowded with, with jubilant subjects, and everybody is hailing him with much fanfare. There's much joy and shouting and triumph, and people have come from even all parts of the kingdom to witness this great spectacle and honor their sovereign. First, in the parade that takes place, march the captives of the conquered region, whether they be soldiers or commoners or even better yet, captured members of the royal family. But now, as part of the spoil of battle, they will serve this new king and this kingdom. Then there are musicians and torchbearers and, and flag wavers that add to the pageantry of the moment. Even exotic flowers and foliage along with animals from the conquered region are also on display and then next comes the war booty. Oh, much silver and gold and precious stones and other valuable treasures are, are wheeled on through the parade route for all to see. <clears throat> and then behind this comes the king himself, riding a spectacular chariot pulled by massive horses. He wears a, a laurel crown. He carries a laurel branch in his right hand. In his left hand, he has an ivory scepter with an eagle on the top, symbolic of triumph. And behind him come his generals and his officers on horseback, followed by his soldiers singing songs of victory. And as they pass the crowd of grateful civilians, they cheer and they fold in behind and they sing with them and shout the praises of the victorious king and his army. Now with all of this in mind, if, if, if you were a part of that, that king's realm, you were one of his subjects, would, would, you, would you honor your king? Would you honor your king in your daily life? Your king who protects you, who, who goes to war for you, who brings justice 
to your enemies and shares the spoils of victory with you? That is what we will consider this morning. And as we do, please turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. Uh, excuse me, chapter, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. I don't know where I saw. Oh, fourth and final. That's why I went, my, I went to 4. <clears throat> 2 Thessalonians, gang. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. <clears throat> we embark this morning on our fourth and final installment of God's righteous judgment. Paul's prayer, the prayer for today. Now, so far, we have considered in our text, looking back at verses 5 to 10, God's righteous judgment as first, the hope to come, in which we saw two amazing promises of God for those who are afflicted, for those who are going through suffering, which really is all Christians. But first, we saw that we are promised the kingdom of God. We are promised the kingdom of God. And secondly, we are promised relief from those afflictions and sufferings. And then part two was all about the justice of God and how that justice will be satisfied by God repaying, bringing about retribution and eternal destruction for those that are the afflictors and not just those who afflict, but for any who do not know God and who do not believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are struggling this week with the justice of God and what has happened in, in recent events, please go back and, and, and watch or listen to that message. And then last week we looked more in-depthly at what those three will look like as we considered God's justice and judgment in the form of hell and the lake of fire consequences and we did so in five categories we looked at the origin the nature duration degrees and separation of hell and our final installment concerns verses 11 to 12 here in chapter 1 which close out the chapter in these two verses you will see a prayer of paul to the thessalonians but one that certainly applies to us today both as individuals, and I would ask you two to consider it in the context of towards Calvary Bible Church and us as the believers that make up the church. Why don't we go ahead and please stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Again, Second Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm going to go ahead and read the whole passage beginning in verse 5. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. To this end also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power 
so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of God, friends. You may be seated. Well, in verses 11 to 12, friends, Paul prays for four things. Four things, the first of which is that God will count you or literally make you worthy of your calling. God will count you worthy of your calling. Now, in case you're wondering what these two verses, 11 and 12, have to do with God's righteous judgment, and and remember that God's judgment, looking back to verses 5 to 10 that we just read, uh, we've come to understand it shows up in two ways, in a positive way, right, to those who believe, but then in a negative way to those who do not believe, those who reject God and reject the gospel, reject his son. Now, look at the first phrase back there in verse 11. He says, to this end, or with this in mind. Now, there's not really a a clear antecedent. Um, So what does Paul have in mind when he says this, to this end, or with this in mind? Well, the whole preceding passage going Back to verses even 3 and 4 is all about the Thessalonians' perseverance and faith in the midst of persecutions and trials. This is then followed by God's promises of their kingdom inheritance and the relief from affliction that, of course, is a part of that. All taking place when his son Jesus victoriously returns, as we considered with our opening illustration. In other words, it's about the Thessalonians, really their, their grand participation in the glorification of Christ Jesus when he comes back, which is to say our grand participation with the Lord Jesus Christ at this time as well. And this is what Paul's prayer is all about. In light of of anticipating the glorious return of King Jesus and participating in, in his, the spoils, including his eternal kingdom and, and marveling at his exaltation and glory, how should this affect us in the here and now? Today, what should we be doing or what should we continue to do as individuals, as the church Until that day comes when he returns. And again, the first part of Paul's prayer is that our God will count you worthy of your calling. So what is your calling that God will count you and I worthy of? Well, first and foremost, our calling was a call to salvation. To be saved. We are we're going to go into this in greater detail when we get to Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. But if you just, you know, look there for a second, you probably don't have to turn your page. Uh, chapter 2, verse 13. Look at, uh, just for a moment, he says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning. For what? Salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Verse 14, it was for this he called you through the gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this being chosen and called of God is what we call 
an effectual calling. If you have been called, if you are called for salvation, your salvation will come to pass. It will take place. It is irresistible in this sense. And again, we'll explore that concept a little more when we get to those specific verses. This call of salvation, though, fits picture perfect with other texts of Paul in this regard. If we were to go back to Romans 8 and 29 and 30, it's that classic text where Paul writes, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified and these whom he justified he also glorified now we might ask so when did this when did this predestining take place we know this from ephesians 1 before the foundation of the world and when did his his calling of you take place as second thessalonians chapter 2 verse 14 says through our gospel Your calling came, friends, when God was ready to bring you out of your sin, out of your darkness, when he was remember, when he was ready to remove the the blinders from your eyes. In first Peter chapter two and verse nine, it says that God has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Whereas Jesus said in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, along with this call to salvation, you have also been called to sanctification, sanctification, growing in Christ likeness, being conformed into his image, walking in a worthy manner, being imitators of God. Back in first Thessalonians chapter four and verse three, we read this for this is the will of God, your sanctification, right? You're growing in Christ likeness. And this manifests in ways such as we see in Ephesians 4 verse 1 when Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Or 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 12. This is Paul and his cohorts living by example so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That's the point of our salvation that we are being called into his kingdom and glory. We get to participate in the glories of Christ at his return and beyond. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, Paul wrote, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Your full and complete sanctification, friends, at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does Paul mean when, when he says that we should be counted or made worthy of our calling? Well, just think about that for a second, and, and, and let's start with this. What are you and I worthy of? Hmm. How about death? How about, you know... 
hell. We are worthy of only death and eternal destruction due to our sin. We see that in Romans 1 verse 32. We're only made worthy of God's kingdom, friends, because of Christ. Because of what Christ has done for us and the fact that he has imputed to us his righteousness. And yet, Paul's prayer is that God would make us worthy of the kingdom. Which he does now by sanctifying us. Which includes our participation in our obedience obedience to Christ and in our walking in a worthy manner and being an imitator of God. In other words, what we choose to do in our lives matters for being counted worthy of the kingdom. What you do with your life as a Christian matters for being counted worthy of the kingdom. We see this exemplified over and over in the New Testament, especially in in the parables. Jesus is uh, parable of the talents, where slaves were given different amounts of money to put to work while the master was away, right? And some were given five talents, and some were given two talents, and some were given one talent. And, and the emphasis there is not so much on, on the amount that was gained back, right? But really the faithfulness of the slave in putting that money to work. That was the point. Their faithfulness. In doing what was expected of them. We have that um, uh, parable too. The faithful and sensible slave. The one who is left in charge of his master's house. And expected to care for the household of the master. Right? While the master was away. And if he did this well. This would please the master. And and the master would, would give the slave the blessing then. Of being put in charge of all the master's possessions. Now for the Thessalonians. Part of their calling and, 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 and being made worthy of their calling had to do with suffering and affliction and them persevering during that time. This is then what showed them to be worthy of the kingdom. We read in 1 Peter 5 and verse 10. <clears throat> Peter says, after you have suffered for a little while. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ (coughs) will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now, who knows? It could be that part of our calling here at CBC as a church body might be towards some kind of affliction and suffering at some point. Maybe... Being able to endure and not depart from our first love, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to stay strong in his word during tumultuous times is a part of how CBC will be counted worthy. To better understand how a church or individual might be made worthy, we might consider the seven churches of Revelation 2 to 3. Where John is given this divine understanding, not only of how a church was counted worthy, but how they were not being worthy, right? As we just briefly go through these, just think about, think about where we're at, maybe as a church, Calvary Bible, and also where you're at as an individual. Remember, there was first the church at Ephesus, known as the loveless church. They were counted worthy in their toils, in their perseverance, in their endurance, 
for not tolerating evil men, for calling out false apostles, and they did not grow weary and hated immorality. But do you remember how they were not counted worthy? They left their first love of Christ. (laughs) I know you go, how could that be? How could you have all these other things you would be counted worthy for, but but you've left your first love? Then it's then it's just kind of workspace, and you're just doing what you you thought you're always supposed to do. What? But they left their first love of Christ. The Church of Smyrna, we call them the persecuted church. They were worthy in the sense of tribulation and suffering, poverty, even blasphemies coming against them. In the area of not being worthy, nothing crickets they were considered worthy amen that was cool 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 church there pergamum the worldly church worthy in the sense of that they endured persecution they never denied the faith but they were not worthy in the sense that they were tolerant of sin sin such as idolatry immorality cults and heresies then you have the church of thyatira we'll call them the worldly church number two They were worthy in the sense of they had love and faith and service and perseverance and good deeds, but not worthy in the sense that they too tolerated immorality and idolatry. Sardis, we might call them the spiritually dead church. They were worthy in the sense that that John comments that there was a few worthy people there, but they were not worthy in the sense that it was mostly a spiritually dead church church philadelphia a spiritually alive church worthy in the sense that they kept jesus's word they didn't deny his name and not worthy again crickets they were good they were good laodicea remember them the lukewarm church worthy nothing nothing given not worthy that they were lukewarm spiritually poor Wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, obviously, there's a whole host of other Christian virtues that God might desire for Calvary Bible Church or for us as individuals to be counted worthy of his kingdom. And okay, maybe we need to get cracking here and figure out what those might be, right? And while we do, let's press on to our second point. That God will fulfill every desire for goodness. The second part of Paul's prayer is that God will fulfill every desire for goodness. Now, again, looking ahead just to chapter 2 and verses 11 and 12, this is the exact opposite of what we read there, where we see um, those who believe what is false and took pleasure in wickedness. This is the opposite. To fulfill, meaning to complete or accomplish. Desire being good intent or gracious purpose. And and goodness as in benevolence, active goodness. And this is God's promise. That he will accomplish every godly desire or intent in us towards godly goodness in thought, word, and deed. As Paul commands some of the the believers in Romans 15, 14, saying that they are full of goodness. Again, referring to godly goodness. And 
yet again, we find ourselves staring at that, that kind of two-sided coin, right? One side being what, what God does to us in accomplishing goodness, but as well, we flip it over and we have our own desire and, and striving for that goodness, just as God is at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. We are also called to obey, to obey him and work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now, friends, this is this is an easy one if if indeed we desire goodness, we desire God's goodness to live godly lives, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. The problem is, is, is we still battle our sinful flesh. Turn to Romans chapter seven. Romans chapter seven. Keep Second Thessalonians there bookmarked and <clears throat> Romans chapter seven, beginning in verse 14. This is a whopper of a text, and, and I, I know at the time we have, we're not going to be able to do this whole thing justice and, and get into some of the nitty-gritty. But, but there's some overarching principles and things going on here that I want you to see that will help us to understand this better. Uh, here in Romans 7, beginning in verse 14, Paul is, is writing here in the present tense as a believer and is acknowledging the conflict that resides in all of us who are on the one hand redeemed and freed from sin and given the Holy Spirit to abide in us, to live and dwell in us. But on the other, we still remain in our sin-cursed flesh while on this earth until the perishable will put on the imperishable. It is at the same time what gives us the desire to do good as well as what thwarts or hinders our desire to do good. Look at Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 14. Paul writes, For we know that the law is spiritual. I'm going to be putting in some parentheses here, and I'll, I'll tell you when I'm doing that. Here, here's your first parentheses. He says, We know that the law is spiritual, parentheses, because it is from God, and because the law demonstrates God's holy character. He says, But I am of flesh. Sold into bondage to sin. Yeah, we could all raise our hand for that one, right? All raise our hands there. Meaning we are both born in sin and we choose to sin. Verse 15, for what I am doing, I do not understand. Referring to his sin, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate, sin. Uh, can, can any of us identify with what's going on here? Or is this just for those people who live up in Idaho? Right, okay. <laughs> Just wanted to make sure. Just wanted to make sure. Verse 16, but if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. Why? Because the law shows us our sin. Verse 17, so now no longer am I the one doing it. Now he's referring to his redeemed self. But sin, which dwells in me, referring to his fleshly self he's not saying that he's not a part of that sin okay verse 18 for i know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh for the willing is present in me but the doing of good is not for the good i want i do not do but i practice the very evil that i do not want but if i am doing the very thing i do not want i am no longer the one doing it but sin which dwells in me again they're talking about the difference between the redeemed self and the fleshly self 
He's not trying to shirk his responsibility and saying, you know, I'm not responsible for my sin. Look at verse 21. Paul says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, referring to his fleshly self, the one who wants to do good, referring to his redeemed self. Verse 22, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. The inner man is the same as his redeemed self. Verse 23, but I see a different law in the members of my body, parentheses, flesh, waging war against the law of my mind, parentheses, redeemed, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members, going back to flesh again. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? We know the answer, right? Paul knows it. Verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. And friends, this will happen first when our body dies and our soul goes to heaven or the rapture happens, whichever comes first, knowing that at some point we will have new and glorified bodies reunited with our Redeemed souls incapable of sinning. Paul finishes off in 25. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. Again, referring to the redeemed self, the inner man. But on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. You know, we could have avoided that whole passage and just gone to Galatians 5, 16 to 17, right? But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. The point here, folks, is that while God will fulfill every desire for goodness, we also understand that this this sin-cursed body, our flesh, our sin gets in the way and can tempt us to not do the good that we want to do and what God expects of us. This is why we have to be about crucifying the flesh with its sinful passions and desires and living and walking by the Spirit. Loved ones... Do you desire God's standard of goodness? Do you desire godly living? Do you desire to walk in a worthy manner and to to imitate God? Do you desire the things that God desires in every area of your life? And, And what about us as a church? Are we pursuing as a church God's standard of goodness? Where are we strong Where are we weak? Where might we fall short? Number three, God will fulfill the work of faith with power. This is also back in verse 11. You can turn back to 2 Thessalonians. God will fulfill the work of faith with power. So side by side with this last one is Paul's prayer that God will fulfill the work of faith with power. Power. And this is something that the Thessalonians have already been commended for their faith, right? Going back even to chapter 1 and verse 3, when Paul said that they give thanks to God for them because their faith 
is greatly enlarged. And then in verse 4, that they glory in the Thessalonians' faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. So God's work of faith is already begun in a major way with the Thessalonians. Turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Just a couple of page turns, I think. 1 Thessalonians 1, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. This faith was something that Paul specifically thanked God for back in this passage when he said, look at verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your what? Work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. So the Thessalonians had this faith thing down, right? They're, they're full steam ahead in the faith department. And, and I think what's so remarkable about this is the fact that, that we're talking about a fairly new, young church. And one that, that frankly immediately started feeling the pressures of persecution and suffering. I mean, how do we how do we explain a church like that and and why the church didn't frankly just shut the doors right away when the persecution started? Forget this Christianity stuff. Man, I didn't know that that was what we signed up for. <clears throat> well, if we continue on in the text, we get some answers in in uh 1st Thessalonians still, chapter 1, look at verse 4. Here's what inspired the Thessalonians, what kept them going in the faith department, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. They understood that they were chosen of God, that they were beloved by God. Paul says in verse 5, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power. So there's the power of the gospel and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Those Thessalonians fully convicted. Just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, you also, here it is, became imitators of us and of the Lord right away. Full conviction led them to just complete imitation of Paul and the others. Having received the word in much tribulation, so they received the word even in the midst of suffering and tribulation and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And as they received it, they also had that joy that comes from the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. I mean, that's, that's awesome. It's incredible the effect that God and His Word and His Holy Spirit had on these people. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is that classic spiritual gifts section. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Guess what one of the spiritual gifts can be? There is a spiritual gift of faith. Faith. He says right here, 1 Corinthians 12, look down at verse 7. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit, right? Capital S, Holy Spirit, for the common good meaning for the good of the body, the church. Verse 8, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge 
according to the same spirit and to another faith by the same spirit. Faith is one of these gifts. Now, how would how would that manifest? How would the having the gift of faith, you know, manifest differently than a believer who has faith, but maybe not that spiritual gift of faith? Faith as a spiritual gift will enable a person to maybe believe in and trust God in the face of even enormous obstacles. In the Old Testament, you remember that the Holy Spirit didn't permanently indwell believing saints. He would come upon them for specific reasons, for uh, specific situations that that God would um, would have the Holy Spirit to do in a person, specific tasks. And for some, it sure seems like they were blessed with a special measure of faith to do what God sent before them. I mean, in my mind, I started thinking about this, and it's like the first one that came to mind is Abraham and Isaac. I mean, hello, you know? I, I don't know. I don't know if I would have had the same measure of faith that Abraham had to tie up his son, put him on an altar and have a knife and be ready and willing to plunge it into him. Fully believing that that God would resurrect Isaac from the dead. I mean, just think of some of the other folks, you know, in the Hall of Faith of Hebrews 11, right? I mean, Noah. Think about the faith that Noah had to have building this crazy ark, right, for this flood. Or Joseph and what he endured time and time again and sold into slavery in the pit and then Potiphar and being accused of crime and then jail and Moses to do what he had to do. The Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, who who had to endure labors and hardship and prison, and he was lashed and he was beaten and he was stoned and he was in danger of death and he was on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, robbers, my countrymen, the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, from false brethren, sleepless nights and hunger, thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And of course, there's a little matter of being shipwrecked and spending a night and a day in the deep. How many of you want to do that? You want to go, you want to go float out there in the ocean in the middle of the night, hold on to some piece of wreckage? I talked about a fear last week. That might be fear number two for me. Right, right up there. No thanks. Think about the martyrs. Think about the martyrs that have gone before us, even some of the disciples or people that were burned at the stake alive because they wouldn't recant their biblical Christianity Personally, I believe some of these were given that special gift of faith. And it could be that the Thessalonians were given that same special gift of faith. This would also make sense in light of this last phrase, fulfill the work of faith with power. That any work of faith is is fulfilled with power. Reminding them that while they are acting out in faith, that faith is only coming about By the one who supplies the power, God. And friends, whether you have the spiritual gift of faith or you just have kind of average, ordinary faith, right? Rest assured, it all comes from God. It all comes from His power. For by grace, 
you have been saved through faith, right? And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. And you go, wait a minute, so what, what, what is the gift of God? Is it the grace or the faith? Yes, yes. Greek grammar tells us it's both. It's both. Both are the gift of God. So let's ask this question. Let's ask this question. In what ways might we here at Calvary Bible Church look for God to fulfill the work of faith by his power? I think we've already seen some answers to that over even the last six months. And and what will he call us on to have faith in even the remaining months of this year? All right, I can give you one. We would we would love to see this last bit of building debt just gone, right? Wiped away, poof, $1.6 million, just, just, just gone, just vanish. And who knows, maybe we're being called to step out in faith and just finish that off sooner than later. And then what will he call us to do or exercise faith by his power in the next year? In 2023 or the year after that, 2024 or five years down the road or even 10 years down the road, we'll have to stay tuned, won't we? In what ways might we need to look to God to fulfill our works of faith as individuals by his power? You know, maybe there's things going on in your life right now that you know you need to work on and, and, and show a work of faith in. Know this, you can try to go it alone and try to show faith in your own power and well yeah good luck let me know how that works out for you right or you can step out in faith in faith knowing and trusting that you have the very power of god the very power of god at your back propelling you forward moving you pushing you forward now the fourth part of paul's prayer is really the purpose or reason for you being counted worthy of your calling, fulfilling every desire for goodness, and fulfilling the work of faith with God's power, and that is that God will glorify Christ in you, and you in Him. God will glorify Christ in you, and you in Him. Look at verse 12. Got to go back to our Second Thessalonians there. Verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole point, friends, of Paul's prayer is that Jesus will be glorified in you. And you will be glorified in him. This, you just got to let this sink in because this is, this is really an amazing truth here. The church... That God counts as being worthy and who is working hard towards goodness and diligently laboring in faith by God's power brings him glory. We bring him glory. And what's even more astounding is that the church that does this actually, according to our text, brings glory to ourselves in Christ. In other words, God, God will be pleased 
And, and maybe even some of the outside world will be witness to these things and also be pleased. Or it allows the gospel to get out and reach them because of what they're seeing. Now, to glorify somebody's name is to praise them, to build up someone's reputation or exalt them, to promote them in just the highest of ways. And Paul's point is that this happens not just because of the words we say, but those words when they're backed up with actions. That is obedience to Christ. Because Paul has talked a lot about what happens when Jesus returns. You know, we might be tempted to think that, well, this is, this is then when he will be glorified in us and us in him at his return. And, 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 and certainly there will be that aspect. But you see, in our text, Paul has shifted focus from the future to the present. The present. He's talking about the here and now. In light of what we have learned so far about God's judgment in the future, how should that affect us, the Thessalonians, us here at Calvary Bible, today in how we live? And furthermore, notice in the second half of the verse that this glorification of Christ and his bride, the church, is according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Even here, friends, lest we think that we're the major contributor to Jesus's glory? Just guess again. We're only able to do anything because of his grace. It's all by his power. It's all by his grace. We have the unique privilege of being used by him, blessed to contribute anything that might be considered worthy or worthwhile. And friends, let me just tell you, there can be no greater, no greater joy in our lives as a church or as individuals, no greater satisfaction, no greater accomplishment than to see the Lord Jesus Christ exalted and glorified. I mean, after all, he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, right? I mean, he, he's the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the Lion of Judah. He is the Lamb of God. He is the Son of God, the Son of Man, and the Holy One of Israel. He is our wonderful Counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting Father, our Prince of Peace. He is our Emmanuel, our Master, our High Priest, our Advocate and Mediator. He is our Good Shepherd, our Chief Cornerstone. He is the Author and Perfecter of our faith. He is the word, the rock, the vine, the door, the bridegroom, the bread, and the living water. He is the bright morning star, and he is the invisible, the image of the invisible God. He is the great I am. And he is the one we love because and only because he first loved us. Right? What's not to love? What is not to love? The man who, who left his heavenly abode, his heavenly kingdom, and took on human flesh and came down to this earth to live the life that we couldn't live, to take our sin upon himself, to go to the cross in our place and be brutalized and tortured and unjustly condemned and 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 nailed to a piece of wood and, and mocked and, and scorned. For us, 
that he would then go into the ground and three days later he would gloriously rise from the dead so that we could we could have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. What is not to love? What is not to love about this great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we have? Oh, please, friends, put your faith and hope and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you haven't done so, do it today. Because today is the day of your salvation, not tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Those poor people in Uvalde figured that out, found that out, right? You don't know what's going to happen an hour from now, five minutes from now. We don't know. We don't know. There is so much uncertainty and so much fear. And won't you be rid of your fear and be rid of your shame and 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 be rid of that burden on your back and that weight on your on your soul and be reconciled to God. Be reconciled through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your faith in him. So friends, let's leave here this morning with maybe a new resolve. A new resolve as individuals, as a church, that as we await the victorious arrival of our King Jesus, let us live up to Paul's prayer so that God might count us worthy of our calling, that he will fulfill every desire that we would have for godly living and every desire for works of faith by his power, so that at the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, he will be glorified. The name of our Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified and that we would have the opportunity to be glorified ourselves in him, all by the grace of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Father, that is our prayer. That is our prayer, Lord, that the Lord Jesus Christ in all of this would be glorified. And Lord, if there is any here that needs to know Jesus as their Savior, that they would repent and believe right now, right now, this moment while I am praying, that they would even silently in their own heart and mind be praying a prayer seeking, Lord, your forgiveness and acknowledging that Christ is their Redeemer. Lord, we again lift up um, all of those folks in Texas and just pray for your comfort, for your care, for your love, grace, and your tender mercies. Let those people know through Christ Jesus that those tender mercies are new every morning because you are a faithful God. We give you all glory, and it's in your son Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.